it sure seems like a midlife crisis when I look at it sometimes. <laughs> and a Porsche definitely would have been cheaper. Have you ever been told you should get a more sensible career? On this show, we speak with creators and artists in Asia who ignored that advice to find success in their creative field. We'll learn how they paved their own path, dealt with roadblocks and challenges, and gained hard-earned lessons on their way to building a unique and singular foolish career. I'm your host, Timmy Sitanko. Rachel grew up in a creative family. Cooking was a form of relaxation, and she was the type of cook who ignored recipes and would just wing it in the kitchen. One year, as a birthday gift from her husband, she went to culinary school. Soon after, they relocated from the States to Singapore, where she met her co-founder, Susie. Can you talk about the circumstances that, that led you to Luang Prabang? Well, when we were living in Singapore, the two families had become fast friends. And Susie quit her job. And then a few months later, my now ex-husband quit his job. And I didn't want to go back to the U.S., And I sat down with Susie and I said, what are we going to do? And she said, let's go build a hotel somewhere. And I said, okay, let's go do it in Laos. Because we had been here on holiday. A lot of it actually has to do with Susie's background. Mm. Susie's a superhero, so to speak, in business. Mm -hmm. And she's lived in different parts of the world. She had lived in Burma back in the 90s. She was in Jakarta when the riots came. She's been all over the place. So she has lots of experience in this part of the world. But when we decided to make this change, we knew Laos being a developing country, there were not a lot of large hotels at the time. And we came here seeing large tour groups come in and not having any place to go because there wasn't any place close to town. They had to go way out if they all wanted to stay together. And we came here with the thought that, yes, we would build a hotel, but we needed to see how things were on the ground. We needed to see how the the city functioned, the government functioned, and figure out whether or not it was doable. We rented a guest house to try and make a little bit of money or at least keep ourselves neutral, not losing money, while we figured things out. There's something that you guys also say in interviews where you wanted a midlife crisis with a purpose, not a Porsche. But was it really a midlife crisis? Yes. Or was it really? Uh I think it is now. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, what's a midlife crisis? I think it's probably something different for everybody. It sure seems like a midlife crisis when I look at it sometimes. <laughs> And a Porsche definitely would have been cheaper. How did the guest house turn into a dairy? Well, shortly after we got here, we were having a conversation with one of our friends and we said, you know, these are just some of the ideas of what we think we want to do while we're here. And he walked away with those thoughts. You know, we said, we want to maybe design a hotel, buy the land, get all the licenses, sell it to the highest bidder, and then we'll play some. And we're thinking of this and that and the other thing. And next thing we know, two months later, he calls us up and he said, Hey, I've got a farmer who will work with you. And we were just like, uh, yeah, not supposed to be the first thing that happens. <laughs> so we completely shifted gears We sat down with this farmer and we started talking to him and we had a lady in our guest house at the time who I had a look at her and I don't know why, but I had this really random thought and I said, got a really random question for you. Do you know anything about dairy farming? And she just gave me the shocked look and she said, actually, yes. 
I worked on a dairy farm for 10 years and I'm in dairy finance for 15. And I was like, oh, you're my new best friend. Come sit. Let's have a chat. So, yeah. I, <laughs> it was total fate. She helped us write up our initial directions on how to milk a buffalo, even though she was talking cows. We took that information that we had then had uh, translated into Lao. And she came with us and we met the farmer and we met the buffalo. And she was a little afraid. None of us, mind you, had been around buffalo. She says, if the buffalo are anything like cows, you're not going to be able to do this because cows are on the wild side. They don't respond well to humans because they don't get a lot of human attention. And we were like, well, let's see what happens. And as it turns out, buffalo are nothing like cows. <laughs> In a good way. They're very sweet. They're like, yes, they're like big puppy dogs, I say because they like to be cuddled and they all have their own personality. So there are those Buffalo that are just like, yeah, get away from me. I don't want anything to do with you. But we went to talk to this farmer and we went into his little field where he had all his Buffalo. And the next thing we knew we were surrounded by Buffalo that were licking us up down in center. She turned to me and she said, you can do this. These Buffalo will let you touch them like that. This was good news. And after six more months, they found a farmer who had buffalo that were producing milk and was willing to let them run a six-week trial. So we did our six-week trial, and we learned that, yes, we could get milk from buffalo, and yes, we could bake cheese from it. And then Susie and Stephen went home for the summer. And then we had to figure things out after that. Wait, you make it sound like the six weeks were no drama. It's like, sure, I'll get some buffalo oh, milk. No. They were... <laughs> They were total drama, <laughs> total drama. We, we had to sit down with this farmer and explain to him using YouTube videos exactly what we wanted him to do. Now, mind you, none of us had ever milked anything before. So we made it seem like we knew what we wanted and what we wanted him to do and that we did no problem, very easy. So convincing the buffalo to stand still was an issue to start with because <laughs> they were like, what do you think you're doing? <laughs> And the fact that we had to separate mom from baby was another issue that they had, but they didn't seem to mind that so much. And then when we finally started getting milk, which we didn't even know if we were going to be able to get, we were only getting a very little bit every day. But Stephen would come out on a daily basis and he would pick up the milk from Mr. A, the farmer who had the buffalo. And he would bring it back to me at home. And about every... Three to four days, I would have enough milk to make cheese and cry. There was a lot of crying going on during this time because you cannot find buffalo milk cheese recipes online. There are only a very few people who make buffalo cheese and no one shares the recipes. You can Google cow's milk recipes coming up the Wahoo. You can find a recipe for just about anything, cow or goat, but buffalo, not so much. So I had to use cow milk recipes to try and make the cheese work. And the compositions of the milk, they're not the same. It doesn't work. So I would try and make cheese and it would fail and I would cry. And Susie would say, well, we can sell it as mozzarella crumble. It still tastes good. It'll be great in a salad, which of course would make me laugh. And then I'd try again and I'd fail and I'd cry and I'd try again and I'd fail and I'd cry. And each time I would try and adjust the recipe to what I thought maybe would work because not being a chemist, I was just guessing. And finally I got to the point where I was 
so disheartened that I found about 15 dairies worldwide that were making buffalo milk cheese. And I emailed them and I said, we're this tiny little place in the middle of nowhere. We're a social enterprise. We're trying to help the local community by supporting the local farmers and giving them an extra income stream. And in the process, I want cheese. Please help me with a recipe. It's not working. And out of the 15 people who I emailed, one person emailed me back. And that was a lady named Thea from Shaw River Dairy in Australia. And she said, I can give you my recipe, but it's not going to work, <laughs> which of course made me cry again until I kept reading on. And then it said, the reason for that is the different levels of fat change how your ingredients react. And I said, oh, but I can work with that. So I took her recipe and I started with her recipe and it got me much closer and I adjusted again. And finally, we had a perfect little ball of mozzarella. It had taken Rachel the entire six-week trial. It wasn't perfect. There were texture and taste issues at first. But once she got those just about right, she shared it with chefs in town who were interested. Based on that positive feedback, they decided this could actually work. Now, if they were in a developed country, this probably meant it was time to order milk, set up an Instagram page, and invite pre-orders. It wasn't quite that straightforward in Laos. Being the first ever dairy here means that we had to do everything. We had to figure out what we were going to feed the buffalo and grow it ourselves or figure out where to get it from. We had to build the entire dairy. We had to import the equipment that we would need for doing the milking and anything else we thought we'd need. And we had to find land. That was our next step was to find some place to put the dairy, but first to start growing the grasses we needed. Because if we didn't have the grass growing, we couldn't feed the buffalo. And we found, I think it was around 26 hectares mm -hmm. in Ban Nassau that wasn't actually ideal when we think back on it now because it, it looked great, but it was very hilly land and buffalo, not so good with the hills. So we cleared and planted 26 hectares of grass and then realized that we were going to have a problem when we tried to put in a road. We had somebody who owned a piece of land that we needed to go through. And even though we were told we had road access, they denied it. And we said, all right, well, we'll go someplace else. And we found a different spot, which is where we have the dairy now. I'm just trying to imagine what permits and licenses and explaining things to government officials. What was that like? And how long did the whole thing take? Well, let's see. That first ball of mozzarella was done in... 2015 and we started actually building the dairy on the site that it's on now in 2016. It feels like mm. forever but everybody else says no no you got it done really quick and I think part of that is because Susie took the portable wi-fi and her computer and she would sit and camp out in the governor's office until he would come out and sign the paperwork she needed. She was very determined. This tall, blonde, flang woman who's saying, no, no, it's okay. I'll wait till he's available. It's okay. I'll just sit here and work. And she would sit outside the secretary's office and the secretary would look absolutely terrified and sit and tell her, he's not here. And she'd say, yes, he is. There's his car right outside the window. I'll just wait for him. It's okay. And she'd sit and she'd work and wait. <laughs> And then finally, he'd come out and she'd say, 
great, can I have your signature? And he finally signed the paper for her. She did that a couple of times, actually. <laughs> That's so cool. And then the other thing was convincing the farmers to lend their buffalo to you. Yes, that was very difficult. So when we were planting all the grass and thinking we were going to be in Nassau, we decided that we had to have information sessions because this was something so completely different for the farmers. So one day, actually, we set up four information sessions, four meetings set up in the same day, going to four different villages. And we'd have probably in each information session, there were at least 20 people who would show up. We had Dr. Som, a Lao vet who was trained in Cuba, who once upon a time tried to do a dairy probably about 20 years ago now, and was way before his time here in Laos. It didn't work. But he had an inkling of dairy and what it was supposed to be like. And he came with us with our government supporters to all of these meetings and sat down and said, this is what we're going to do. And this is why it's so beneficial for you. And the farmers would sit and they would ask questions and they were really great talks. And we learned a lot from the farmers and the farmers learned a lot from us. But what came out of it was, this sounds too good to be true. You mean you want me to give you my buffalo? You're going to take my buffalo to your farm. You're going to feed her. You're going to vaccinate her. You're going to take care of her. You're going to help when she has a baby. You're going to take care of the baby. You're going to vaccinate the baby. Then when you start to milk her, you're going to pay me for the milk. And then you're going to give me back my buffalo and the baby and money. What's wrong with you people? It does sound too good to be true when you put it that way. It does. And that's exactly what they thought. So while they were very interested, most of the farmers said, I'd love to do it, but I need to see the results first. I need my brother, my cousin, my neighbor, someone else to do it first so that I can see that I'm actually going to get back my buffalo and it's going to be healthy. We happened to be lucky enough during the time period that, first of all, Somlet, the village chief who we first worked with, and Mr. A, the farmer, they understood it because they saw what we were doing right from the get-go. So they were more willing to rent us their buffalo. And people could then come see that these buffalo were here and look at how fat they were compared to your buffalo because these buffalo are getting <laughs> fed a proper diet and your buffalo are scrounging for food because it's dry season. And we had a, a businessman who he found out about what we were doing and he said, you know what? It sounds like it's going to be a really good thing. I want to help you get started. So he went off and he bought nine pregnant buffalo and he brought them to our farm and he said, you know, I don't have any land for them. So you have to keep them here. We were like, oh, okay. Only four of them were pregnant. So he sold the other five, but one of them is our showgirl, Lola. Everybody knows Lola because she's so Lola. wonderful. Yes, Lola. <laughs> so Lola lives with us and she's been with us from almost the very beginning. And people can come and they can see, and Lola's fat. <laughs> she's very fat. <laughs> <laughs> and we would bring all the farmers who were interested. They all came to the farm. They got to walk around. They got to have an explanation of exactly what was happening. They saw quarantine and where we kept them for the first month and how they were treated in there. They saw the sheds and the areas where they were kept. They saw what we were feeding them. They saw how they were bathed. 
They saw how they were milked. And then they saw them when they were going back. Not to mention the fact that they saw that people were getting babies, which is a big issue because outside of our farm, almost 50% of the babies die before six months. Inside of our farm, it's less than 5%. That's a big difference when this is your bank account we're talking about. So it took about 18 months for you know the babies to turn around, moms to get pregnant again with better genetics, go off, have another baby. And farmers finally started saying, you know what, this is a really good deal. I'm getting in on it. So at this point, it's two and a half years and the business is just taking off. Yes. What was it like for you being the chef, having to build out an operation like that and start to develop cheese in a place where you really had to do everything from scratch? It was a lot of fun. I mean, I love it. I love that kind of experimentation and having never made cheese before, (laughs) it made it even scarier at the same time because people come in and they have their mindset on what cheese should be. And I have to tell people, I've never made cheese before. I had to learn how to do this all on my own because I'm a little afraid of what they'll think otherwise. I think it makes a difference. I mean, if you're a master cheesemaker, somebody who's making it for 20 years and you come into a country like this and set things up, yeah, great. You're going to have fantastic cheese anyways. But if you're somebody who's never done it before and you're trying desperately to figure it out all on your own with no one helping you, it's kind of scary. It's really... What reaction am I going to get from people? How are they going to judge me and judge our products? Who was the first chef who you were brave enough to put your cheese in front of? I think the first chef was probably Somsac from Blue Lagoon, yes. Because we loved his restaurant. We had eaten there many times. And we knew that they had some cheese on their menu. He's a very accomplished chef. He trained in Switzerland. So having somebody like that on my side, tasting my product, to me, that's a huge deal. It was scary at first because, you know, back then I didn't really know him all that well. I got to sit down with him and say, look, you know, I've never made this before. This is an experiment. And especially the prestige of his restaurant as well. Going in and saying, please, sir, will you test this for me? Tell me what you think. I'm just this you know, a tiny little person here. It was scary. It was definitely scary, but he was very nice about it. He's really a big teddy bear though, you know. (laughs) I worked with him to try and give him what he wanted the entire time. Somsak is a Luang Prabang native who grew up under communism when there was nothing in the country and fresh milk only arrived in 1990. These days, he uses the dairy's mozzarella, but it's a far cry from those first samples. He was using mozzarella from Italy and expected the same quality. And because of the grass the buffalo eats, their cheese had a strong aroma. Somsak grew up with buffalo, so he recognized the smell. His European customers had a strong nose for cheese, so it would not work. Still, restaurants in the area needed local sources. It was a better option than having brokers from Thailand, Vietnam, and Singapore hand-carry mozzarella into Laos to avoid suboptimal shipping conditions. So he kept giving feedback. And a year after that first tasting, Somsak placed his first order. Today, Laos Buffalo Dairy supplies most of the high-end hotels and restaurants in, in Luang Prabang and Vientiane, the capital city. So right now we do mozzarella, ricotta, feta, marinated feta, blue cheese, yogurt, ice cream, cakes, 
Anything that has to do with milk on our farm, including the coffees, it's all buffalo milk. Yum. Yes. <laughs> A couple of years ago when I got the chance to visit your farm, you were just working out how to send your first batch of cheese to Japan. Yes. How's that going? We have popped different amounts of cheese on a plane to Japan, originally by itself with a couple of volunteers that we had here that were going back at the time. I went myself and brought a whole package of cheese with me. And most recently in February, we sent almost a hundred kilo of cheese to Japan for the food X that was supposed to happen. And our cheese got there and it made it into customs. And two days later, they canceled the food X because of COVID. So our distributor there has people who are interested in it, but he was hoping to present our cheese during the food X so that he could get more people interested in it. So he still has it. We've gone through all the rigorous testing that we initially had to do with Japan. We have another set of testing that we're in the process of raising funds for because all the cheese is frozen and it stays frozen on their end. It needs to be thawed and then the expiry dates tested. So that's the next testing bit that we're about to do. And yeah, and he's going to continue working his little magic to find people who are interested. And we have a group by the name of Crossfields that had sent us a volunteer for five months. They are going to volunteer on their side virtually to help us find more clientele, help translating our website into Japanese and all of that kind of stuff, help with social media and Japanese so that we can drum up more business on his end. Can you talk a bit about that, what you're having to do now in the time of COVID to, to keep afloat? This past high season was the best high season that we have seen. Susie and I were actually talking to each other saying, if it continues on like this, we're going to have to hire a ton more people because we were having a hard time handling it ourselves and with the small staff that we had on the tourist side. It was really that busy. We were actually looking at becoming sustainable all in and possibly making a little bit of a profit. So sustainable meant that the farm was making enough money to pay for itself, pay for salaries. Correct. And you guys could finally take a salary. Yes. And we're just trying to find other streams of revenue right now that aren't tourism based so that we can keep our farm open and keep paying our staff and keep supporting the, the farmers. A lot of hotels have closed down, restaurants have closed down, shops have closed down. There are many, many people who are either out of work or on seriously reduced salaries. Uh, a lot of people have gone back to their villages. We were able to have a look at our budget and instead of firing anybody, we just, we reduced their salaries by a little bit um, in order to keep the farm open. And we're looking at other revenue streams, Japan being one of them, in order to keep the farm running and keep money coming in so that we can keep paying our farmers and keep paying our staff and keep supporting the buffalo. Gosh. It's a little difficult. <laughs> yeah. Can you talk about the importance of community in bringing this kind of project together and keeping it going 
There are so many different aspects to that question. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Because this started off with us really wanting cheese and, well, you know, we've got a resource here, let's use it and pay the farmers. So that's where it originally started, but it has grown so much from there. Probably almost 60% of our staff is female. So we're helping to empower the women here in Laos. We're working with the farmers. They're not just men. They're actually women. We're giving the women something else to do and another income stream. And on top of all of this, we're also working on a nutrition program within the community. Um, I don't know if you know, but almost 44% of children here in Laos are chronically malnourished before the age of two. And when you get to the age of five, it's almost 50%. And we realized since there's no dairy culture here, they have a resource that they can help themselves with. They just don't know how to use it. Specifically now, we're bringing in what we're calling village champions to come to the farm, learn everything they can about planting the grass for the buffalo and how to raise it, how to milk their buffalo, how to build a crush, how to separate mom from baby and when to do it and all of these things. And then most importantly, how to use the milk. Everyone here in Laos eats rice, but rice, as we all know, has virtually no nutritional value. Rice, unfortunately, is a staple breakfast, lunch, and dinner for most people here because it's what they can afford to eat. And all they need to do is milk their buffalo and have 500 ml of that buffalo milk and put it in their rice cook pot in the morning. They effectively will pasteurize it by boiling it And they will impart the nutrition from the milk to the rice to their entire families. So they can work on the malnourishment problem within their villages before anybody ever gets truly very sick. And this is what we're trying to teach them now. And we've been very successful. We have a a village in Champette that we've been working with uh, for quite a while now. And This village in particular has set it up in a wonderful way. So they're milking the buffalo and two people every morning will be making a rice porridge for all of the children in the village. And every day it'll switch to be two different people. So instead of it being a one-off for each person in their family and having to do it and having to say, oh, I have to go milk the buffalo again, this village is working together, (laughs) which is really nice. And they're going to improve their their nutrition levels. And we're working also with the Department of Health here in Laos. So the children in those village who have been deemed as extremely malnourished, they're getting weighed and measured on a regular basis. So we will see how this milk is contributing to better nutrition as the children grow. One of the things that we specifically are working on is we're in the process of trying to raise some funds to expand equipment so that we can do the Japan thing. Because if we can get that up and running where we're delivering two tons of cheese to Japan every month, that's approximately 163 buffalo that we will need milking every month just to supply enough milk for making cheese for Japan. Now that 163 buffalo represents approximately 125 farmers that we can then help. Over a year, that's about 250 farmers and 
250 farmers is about $25,000 that will go back to the farmers' pockets. There's clearly been a lot of moments when you could have just quit and thought, this is way too much. We don't have to take this risk. Let's go. What kept you going? Oh, (laughs) so many things. (laughs) The fact that we picked up our lives and we moved here. The fact that we sold our houses in order to try and do this. We wanted to try and make something of it so that we could, you know, maybe make a little bit of that money back. The fact that we know we have more than so many more people here in Laos already. Well, let's try and give back to the community. So many things have kept us going and so many things have made us want to stop at the same time. (laughs) We've had our moments. We've all had our moments where we've just thrown up our hands and said, you know what? If it continues like this, we're closing the doors and we're going home. But we don't want to do that. We want to keep going. We want to try and make it work. And what advice do you have on resilience? Resilience. Uh, Well, I think you, you have to have a strong backbone. You have to have somebody in your corner like Susie who can see outside the box. You know, that's that's part of it is looking outside the box and seeing mm. how you can make something work when it seems like everybody's trying to tear it down and finding another way, you know, to keep going. We were a heavily tourism-based business. The borders are closed. So we have to do something in order to keep going. And it's just finding that extra thing, thinking, using your brain. Amazingly enough, a lot of it's using your brain. Easier said than done. Yes, it definitely is. Thanks for listening to Foolish Careers. If you enjoyed this episode, there's more where that came from. Just subscribe to the Foolish Careers newsletter. You'll get a new story a week featuring a storyteller, artist, or creative entrepreneur in Asia who ignored the advice to get a more sensible career. So subscribe today at foolishcareers.asia. We look forward to hearing from you.